John chapter 3 is our passage. There are some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. I stayed up late last night. I watched a basketball game. My dad and I did a lot of texting last night, and we concluded that if we had been coaching our team, it might have come out different. We, we diagnosed all the problems and knew exactly what needed to be fixed, and we lost anyways. They didn't consult us. This morning we texted on a serious note uh, and reminded each other uh, what a great thing we have something to wake up for on a Sunday morning, something that's better than losing a basketball game or even winning a basketball game. And that hope that we have is uniquely summarized in our passage this morning, John 3.16, a verse that could be the very first Bible verse that you ever memorized. Uh, could be uh, one of the verses that if we just put you on the spot and said, share a, a Bible verse that you know, the Scripture reference in the verse, that would be one that you could rattle off quickly and easily. And we're going to try to make sense of it this morning. My guess is if you have ever... Googled a Bible verse. Google is a verb now. So if you've ever Googled a Bible verse, you've thought to yourself, hey, isn't there a verse in the Bible that says something like this? You've come across a website called BibleGateway.com. It's a website. They have all sorts of different Bible translations available on the website. They have the Bible in multiple languages available for free on their website. They even have some study tools. I've never used those. They may be good. They may not be good. But they pay a lot of money to be the top result on your Google search. When you Google Bible verse about and then you fill something in and you're trying to find something, Bible Gateway wants to be the site that you go to. And every year they do something kind of interesting. They keep track of all the different Bible verses that we Google. And they keep track of all the different verses that we click on on their website. And every year at the end of the year they publish something called the top verses of the year. And they're not trying to say these verses are better or worse than other verses or passages. They're just saying these are the verses that more people got online to look up, to search for, to find than any of the other verses in the Bible. They also publish the least or the bottom of the barrel Bible verses, which is kind of interesting to see the verses that no one clicked on. But the top five over the last couple years, uh, there's some shuffling in the top five, but the top five is pretty consistent. And I bet you could guess some of these. I'm just going to put them up on the screen for you to see. Number five, over the last couple years, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No surprise that that one made the top five. Number four comes from Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Number three, top verse, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Number two, I believe, comes from Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And no surprise, over the last couple years, the most consistent number one on Bible Gateway, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. No surprise that that's the top verse that people click on or look up on Bible Gateway. It is interesting that this is a verse that scholars have sort of a a friendly debate about. And I included this on your notes. I just want you to be aware. In John 3, Bible translators don't 
all agree about where Jesus' words come to an end and about where John's commentary picks up. There's an interesting thing. In ancient Greek writing, they didn't use quotation marks. So you can't look up the old Greek manuscripts of John and see, well, the quote ends here. This was Jesus up to this point, and then John took over. Most of the time in the Bible, when you read through, the authors give you clues. They use little sort of key words that get your attention, and you understand they're about to quote an Old Testament scripture. They're about to insert a quote at this point. It's just not exactly clear in John 3. And so Bible scholars disagree. Some of them think that John 3, 16 to 21, the verses Hunter read earlier, some of them think that's Jesus. And they, if you have a red-letter Bible, they put it in red print. And so I'm reading out of the ESV, and it's red all the way from John three sixteen to 21. And if you pay attention to the punctuation, you'll notice that right before verse 16, they continue the quotation mark. So even if you don't have a red-letter Bible and a black-letter Bible, you can pay attention to where does the, the quote end. Does it end at the end of verse 15, or does it continue into verse 16 down through 21? It's an interesting debate to sort of try to figure out who said what. Was it, was it John telling us Jesus said this, or was it John commenting on what Jesus said? It's an interesting debate. I'll be honest with you. It's really not an important debate. Is really not that important. It's not important because we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Not just the red letters in the Bible, but all of the words in the Bible. Right? Our belief in the inspiration of the Bible means the black words are just as true as the red words. Sometimes people forget this. Sometimes people try to say, well, Jesus said this as if it's some sort of trump card over everything else or anything else you might read in the Bible. But everything that Jesus said, everything that's in red type is not ever going to contradict everything else that's in black type because the same Spirit inspired all of it. So just a couple of verses for you to think about. 2 Timothy 3 we'll put up on the screen, and I have 1 Timothy. That's my typo. But Paul says this to Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. It's all breathed out by God. Remember, we talked about this word breathe, right? This word pneuma in the Greek. It's, it's God's Spirit that inspired these words. He breathed them out, the black ones and the red ones. Inside the quote, outside the quote, all of the Scripture is true. It really doesn't matter who said it. It's true. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1. No prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The words that they wrote were actually the words that the Spirit wanted to be in the Scriptures. So wherever your Bible comes down on this, your translation, and the NIV does it one way and the King James has this way, and I've talked about the ESV, really doesn't matter where the quote ends. It really doesn't matter if it's red or black. It's true. If it's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's true. Or if it's what the Apostle John wrote about what Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's also true. I want you to pay attention to one word, the first word in verse 16. Sometimes it's the word, if you're quoting this verse, you may skip over it. You may just jump into, God so loved the, the world. But the first word is, for. And the word for connects the passage with the previous stories about Jesus clearing the temple and Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And I just want you to understand, if we're tracking through the Gospel of John, 
And if you want to make sense of John 3.16, the most searched for, the most clicked on verse over the last several years, over probably human history, you've got to understand the stories that came right before it. And so some of you were here for this, some of you were not. Let me just give you a brief recap. Jesus, early in his ministry, has called a few disciples. He hasn't gathered 12 apostles, but he has a few disciples. And he takes these disciples, he goes up to Jerusalem, because you always travel up to Jerusalem, the elevation goes up. He goes south, but he's going up to Jerusalem, and he goes for the Passover celebration. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple complex. And arriving at the temple complex, it's chaos. There is no worship taking place. It's just chaos in the court of the Gentiles. There are money changers there, providing a legitimate service, but at the wrong place in the temple. And there are people there selling animals. They needed the animals for the sacrifices, a legitimate service, but they shouldn't have been doing it in the temple. And so Jesus sees this. He's angered. He makes a whip, and he literally chases everyone out of the temple complex so that all the money changers are are gone, all the animals and all the merchants are gone, and the only one left in the temple complex at the Passover celebration is Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The authorities come and they want answers. They want to know who gave you the right to chase people out of here. Perform a sign so that we would know who you are and who gave you this authority. And Jesus looks at him and he says, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. Tear the temple down, and three days later, I'll rebuild it. They look around, they see the stones, they see the building, and they say, that's ridiculous, this man's crazy. John sort of gives us a little, a little added commentary, and he says he wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about his body, that they would kill him, and three days later, he would rise from the dead. That really wasn't the answer the authorities wanted, so they sent someone, it seems, and the person they sent is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he comes and he says, Hey, Jesus, we know that God is with you because you're doing all these great signs. We don't know what the signs were, but he was doing them, and he says, We know God is with you. And Jesus just cuts through the small talk. He doesn't even acknowledge the small talk, and he gets right to the issue. He looks at Nicodemus, this leader among the Jewish people, this teacher in Jerusalem, and he says, Nicodemus... If you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. The Holy Spirit has to blow life into your life like the wind blowing over Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. You have to be born again. And have a conversation about how the Spirit works and what does new birth mean and and why is it important. And in the end, Nicodemus is left with a question. And we saw the question in John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm not connecting all the dots in what you're trying to say to me. How can all of these things be? The answer is in what follows, and our passage is part of what follows. It's the big idea, John 3.16, very simple, very straightforward. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'm not sure it's possible for most of us to feel the weight in the gravity of John 3.16. I think it's hard for most of us. 
We know it's an important verse because people write it on signs at sporting events and people get online and Google it more than any other verse. I'm just not sure it's very easy for most of us to feel the weight of that verse. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. I think one reason it's hard for us to take in that verse is familiarity. We're just familiar with it. We've heard it a thousand times. We know what it says. We could say it backwards and forwards. We know the address. We may not know the address for many verses in the Bible, but we know that one. And we just think we know it. We think we have it down. And familiarity does something funny to us. And I'll just give you an example. Think about September 11th. Every September 11th, we see pictures like this and videos like this. And even now, as I put that picture up on the screen... If you lived through that day, or you didn't live through that day, it probably creates some sort of feeling inside of you, some sort of reaction. Even now, as you sit here and you look at the picture, it makes you feel a certain way, but it doesn't make you feel like it did September 11, 2001, and when you watched it live, it doesn't feel the same. It might have an impact on you, but it's just not the same. Why? It's because we saw it on loop over and over and over and over and over again. And every year on the anniversary, September rolls around, we see the pictures and we watch the videos and we think about it over and over and over again. And it's good that we do that, that we remember it, but it just sort of changes the way that it impacts our lives. Listen, that's true for John 3.16. We have heard it so many times, we're just familiar with it. Beyond familiarity, I think there's a challenge in this verse that relates to the way that you grew up. Big group of people, I don't know what your growing up was like, if it was good or bad, but let me just give you some examples of what I mean. Some of you grew up and in your home, you very rarely, maybe never, heard someone older than you and your family say, I love you. Maybe that just was not done in your home. Maybe you knew that your parents or your grandparents loved you because they took care of you, they provided for you, they were kind to you. But some people just grew up in a situation where you just didn't hear those words very often, maybe at all. And if that's you, you come to John 3.16, and it may just sound too good to be true. You may not know how to process it. You may not know how to take this in. Not just that another person has love for you, but the God who created everything loves you. You may be waiting for the catch. Like, what's the catch? Where's the fine print? This, this sounds too good to be true. I don't really know how to, how to process that or receive that because I didn't hear that growing up. Others of us have the exact opposite problem. You may have grown up in a home. And as I described a home where no one ever told you or, or very rarely said that they love you, you may think, man, I cannot relate to that. My parents told me they loved me all the time. My grandparents told me they loved me all the time. Every time I went to bed, my parents came in and they tucked me in and they told me I love, they love me. And if that's you, I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm happy for you. That's, that's the way you should be brought up, raised up. But there's a danger in that if that's you. The danger is that you grew up thinking you were a very lovable person. I mean, as long as you could remember, oh, I love you so much, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And you hear that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you grow up and you just think, well, everybody loves me. 
Who wouldn't love me? I'm just the most lovable person. My parents love me so much. You read John 3.16 and you just say, well, of course. Why wouldn't he love me? Everyone loves me. I don't know what your background is. I don't know how familiar you are or you aren't with this verse, to be honest with you. I just want you to understand that when you read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. When you read that, it ought to shock you. It ought to be shocking. It was shocking for the original people who heard it or read it. Whether you think that was Nicodemus or John's original readers, it was shocking. And it was shocking because what John is saying is God's love is remarkable. It is not reserved for a single ethnicity. It's not just centered on one group of people. Look, it's true that in the Old Testament, God worked through a man named Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his 12 sons. They became Israel. It's true that God worked through the the people of Israel as his covenant people in the old covenant. But it's also true that if you trace it all the way back to Abraham, God's plan always included the nations. It might have centered on Israel, but it always included all of the peoples of the earth. That was not a late addition. But in Nicodemus' day... In Jesus' day, some people weren't so sure about that. Some people looked back through all the Old Testament, all of redemptive history in the Old Covenant, and they said, you know, it looks like God really just loves Israel, and He just has it out for everyone else. In Nicodemus' day, it wouldn't have been uncommon for a Jew to say, God loves Israel. Everyone else, I don't mean this to be crude, I mean it quite literally, can go to hell. That's why God made all the other people. There were Jewish people in Jesus' day who taught this. That God made the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. And he loves only Israel. And John 3.16 just blows that right out of the water. God has love for, for the world, for all of the peoples, all of the nations. Not just Israel. It's not just limited to a single ethnicity. It's a remarkable love. But beyond the fact that it's not reserved for a single ethnicity, I want you to think about this. God's love is remarkable, not just because the world is so big, but because it's actually so bad. That's really what makes John 3.16 shocking. It's not that you just say, well, look how many people and God loves all of them. Well, look how many nations and God loves all of them. It's that you look at all of the people and we're all sinners and God loves those sinners. The shocking part is not how big the world is, but it's how bad the world is. There's a verse in the Old Testament. It comes very early in the Bible. It's Genesis 6-5, and it's a summary of all the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin. This is the summary, Genesis 6-5. It rings through the whole Old Testament, through all of human history. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you don't understand that Genesis 6-5 is about you, me, Israel, and every other person and every other nation on earth, you will not find John 3.16 to be a shocking verse. It'll just roll through your brain on auto-repeat. 
it will be familiar to you. You can rattle it off. You can say it in your Awana class and get a prize. You can quote it to somebody. You can type it on your Facebook page. It's just not going to be shocking to you. But when you understand that Genesis 6-5 is a, a description of every human being apart from God's grace and mercy, of you and me, that our wickedness is great. It's not small and insignificant. It's actually quite great. And it seeps down. It begins in the foundation of who we are in our hearts. It's not just an external problem. It's an internal problem. And it's all the time. And it impacts everything we say, everything we think, everything we feel, everything that we do. When you start to get that picture of who we are as sinful people, then you come to John 3.16. It is shocking. Because John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This morning, as we sort of prepared ourselves to hear that very familiar verse, I want you to think with me about John 3.16 and the verses that follow. And I just want to lay out for you some basic, basic gospel truths. Gospel truth from John 3, 16 to 21. We'll start with this. Jesus' mission involves salvation, not condemnation. That's clear from this passage. John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to provide salvation. Now listen to me. You live in a day and a time where people hear that verse. Unbelievers hear that verse and they want to throw it right back in our face. And they want to say, look, it says it right there. He didn't come to condemn. Who are you to talk about my sin? I just want you to understand, it's perfectly true that Jesus came and he came on a mission of salvation, not condemnation. It's also true that Jesus had a lot to say about sin and a lot to say about hell. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. I am well aware of the fact that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the worst of the worst. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm also very clear that when Jesus hung out with this, these people, he called them to repent. Mark chapter 1, when Jesus started preaching, he said, repent Turn from your sin. What you are doing is not okay. Stop it, turn away from it, and believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Repent. Jesus called people to turn away from their sins. John's point, or Jesus' point, whoever you think is talking, the point is not that Jesus is just fine with whatever you want to do. He's okay with however you want to live. The point is that his mission in coming was not to condemn you, but it was to provide salvation. And that makes sense when you understand this next thought. Apart from Jesus, we're dead and we are condemned. Left to ourselves, if Jesus doesn't come, we are spiritually dead and we're already condemned. John 3, verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You don't need Jesus to come and condemn you. You can do that yourself. Let me give you an example of this from the world of sports. I like sports. Even when my teams lose, I like sports. In professional sports, 
the, the idea of drafting new players is pretty simple. Every year, they look at all the teams, baseball, basketball, football, whatever, and they say, who was the best and who was the worst? If you're the worst, you get to pick first. And I know they trade picks and they trade players, and sometimes this gets shuffled around, but the basic idea, you understand, if you were the worst of the worst, you get to pick first. You get your pick of anybody that you want to be on your team. And if you find yourself as the worst team in the league and you have the first pick, nobody sits around in those draft meetings and says, who could we add that would really make us worse? Like, let's find somebody who's going to be terrible. You're already terrible. You don't need anybody to be added to your mess of terribleness. You need a savior. You need somebody who's going to lift you up from the bottom. Listen, when it comes to God, you and I finish last. You could say dead last. Spiritually dead. Last place. We don't need Jesus to come and condemn us. We have done a magnificent job of that ourselves. Don't believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, the one that God sent. You're already condemned. doesn't change anything. You're already under condemnation. Jesus didn't need to condemn us. We did that to ourselves. What he came to do is to save us. You need to understand this. This is important, and it's clear from John 3. God has provided a single way of salvation. A single way of salvation. In the familiarity that you have built up, you've sort of been uh, uh, immunized or inoculatized or whatever the word is I'm looking for in John 3.16. You may have missed this. God so loved the world. God had such great love for sinners that he gave one person, his only son. He didn't send multiple people. He sent one person. It says it again in verse 18. If you believe in him, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Why? Because you haven't believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is only one person that God sent to fix this problem. He did not send multiple people. You live in a day, in an age, in a time, in a country where people hate that idea. I'm not saying to you that they just disagree with it. They do disagree with it. I'm telling you that they hate it. They hate it with everything in their being. When you stand up and you say, there is only, Acts 4.12, one name given under, under heaven by which we might be saved, people hear that and they say, absolutely no. I want nothing to do with that. When you say what Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. People hate that. You can rage against it. You can object to it. You can throw your hands up in defiance. You can do whatever you want to do. You can say whatever you want to say. There is one way of salvation. God loved the world to such a degree Not that he sent lots of different saviors and you can pick from whichever one you like the best. He sent one person. He sent his only, his unique son, Jesus. 
And you can look at that and you can say, well, I don't like the options set before me. That's fine. You don't have to like it. What you ought to do is look at it and say, why did he send one? Why did he send anybody? He was under no obligation to send his son. He was not beholden to us. He did not have to do anything to fix what we messed up. He was not obligated to send someone to save us from condemnation. He did not have to do that. And the great marvel, the great mystery, the great wonder is not that we look at it and say, why did he only give us one way to be saved? It's that we look at it and we say, why did he give us any way to be saved at all? So you can look at it like the world does and you can rage against it and you can say that's narrow, that's exclusive, that's so arrogant to say there's only one way. Or you can look at it humbly, understanding who you are as a sinner and you can say, I don't deserve that way. And he provided it out of his love. There is a single way of salvation. Here's some more bad news. It's the truth about you and the truth about me. Left to ourselves, we love the darkness more than the light. Just leave us to ourselves. We prefer the darkness. We don't want the light. This is already a repeated theme in John's gospel. Flip back and look at John chapter 1. Verse 9, John says in his prologue, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The light was coming. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The light came and his very own people said, we'll pass. He says it differently in John 3 in our passage. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? It's because their works were evil. Left to ourselves, we actually prefer the darkness. I want to share something with you that may sound a little bit strange at first, but I think it's so clear when you combine what we've been talking about in John 3. When you go back to this stuff about Jesus at the Passover and he's clearing the the temple and he's talking about tearing the temple down and he's going to build it back up and he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it and he says, Nicodemus, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness to provide salvation for his people. I need you to understand something. You need the Father to send the Son. You need the Father who loves the world to send the Son. You need that. It's not enough. You do need it. It's not enough. You need the Son who was sent to be lifted up on the cross. You desperately need that. There will be no salvation apart from it. But if that's where the gospel stops, it's not enough. Because John says the light came, the sun was sent, and we preferred the darkness. And when you go back and loop around to what Jesus just said to Nicodemus, you understand that yes, we need the Father to send the Son out of His love. 
Yes, we need the Son to be lifted up for our sins on the cross. But we also need the Spirit of God to make us alive when we're dead. Apart from that, there's no salvation. And what John is describing is a Trinitarian view of how sinners get saved. Look, we just sang a song. Holy Spirit. We prayed, God, send your Spirit. Your Spirit is welcome here. For some of you, we sing that song and you get really nervous. You get nervous because you've been in churches where the Holy Spirit gets used as a, a, an, an explanation or a scapegoat for all sorts of silly things. All sorts of silly prophecies, words of wisdom. All sorts of silly uh, babbling out in tongues that no one can understand. All sorts of silly things, healings that, that look real but may not be real. All sorts of just chaotic stuff. We pin that on the Holy Spirit. And as Baptists, we don't want... We don't want to be like that. It makes us nervous. We get anxious. But then we just sang a song. Holy Spirit, we want you to show up. What is it that we want the Holy Spirit to do? What are we asking God to do in sending His Spirit? If John were to answer that question, if Jesus were to answer that question, the answer is really, really simple. We need the Holy Spirit to give us new birth, new life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We prefer the darkness to the light. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of man. It's not something that you conjure up. It's something the Holy Spirit does in your life. Look, this is a Trinitarian view of salvation. We believe in the Trinity. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There is distinction among the persons, but there is unity in the Godhead. One in essence, three in person. It's a mystery, but we believe it. We find it in the Scriptures. And what John is saying to us is that no sinner ever gets saved apart from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together. They all have a role to play. We sometimes treat the Holy Spirit as like a, an anonymous add-on. What we need is Jesus to die for us. Okay, first what we need is the Father to send the Son because He loves us. Not because we're lovable, but just because He's gracious and He loves us. Secondly, we need the Son to come and we need Him to be lifted up for our sins. We need Him to die our death. Thirdly, we need the Spirit of God to give us life because we're dead. We have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. A person can't enter a second time into the womb. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit has to give you new life. The Spirit has to give you new birth. The Father sends the Son. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And then they send the Spirit to apply it to our lives. All three members working together. And when all of those three things come together in somebody's life, here's your response. I believe. I don't need you to contribute to it. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have handled it. And what you're called to do is believe. So John 3.16 says this, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe in Jesus I told you a few weeks ago that in the Gospel of John, he never uses the noun faith. He only uses the verb believe. 
The words are connected in the Greek, but he always uses the verb. There's always action involved in believing. This is what you do. You believe. It's not just that you listen to a bunch of doctrine and you say, yeah, put my stamp on it. That's right. It's not just that you learn enough stuff that you could pass a systematic theology exam. Listen, Satan and the demons would break the curve on a systematic theology exam. They know it. They know it's true. They don't believe. And John is calling us, Jesus is calling us, the Word of God is calling us to believe. To understand it, yes, to have comprehension. To be convicted that it's true, yes, I believe this is true. But also to commit ourselves to it and to trust in it. To believe. Here's the remarkable thing about our passage as we close. Our faith is revealed in our actions. Our faith is revealed in our actions. Look at the end of our paragraph. John 3, 20 and 21. We started off with John 3.16 about everyone believing won't perish but have eternal life. So we've, we've talked about believing. The end of the passage. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When you read the whole paragraph together, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We started off talking about believing. We ended up talking about works. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever does these works in the light, his faith is evident. Which one is it? Is it the believing or is it the works? And the answer is yes. Yes. That's it. You got it. Look, we take John 3.16. We forget all the stuff before it. We don't even pay attention to what comes after it. And we turn it into this say a prayer type thing. And we say, look, God is concerned about your eternity. That's true. God is concerned about your eternity. You don't have to die. You can believe. Believe. This morning, believe. I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, I'm urging you, I'm begging with you. Believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Your eternity will be changed. But here's what the whole passage is telling us. When the Holy Spirit of God causes you to be born again, it's not just changing your eternity, it's actually changing you. It's not just saying a prayer so that when you die, you go to one place over the other. It is that, but it's more than that. The Spirit of God is taking someone who is dead, someone who prefers the darkness because our deeds are evil, and He's changing us into new kinds of people. People who believe. People who carry out our deeds and our works in the light. People who are true, genuine followers of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life.